You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I just want to tell you that uh, we put together our best of 2017 list. Longform's favorite articles. Uh, we got our top 10. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but some of them have been on this podcast. And then picks in categories, arts, business, crime, uh, the most clicked is on there. You should go check it out. It is a cornucopia of fantastic reading. It's available at longform.org. Here's the show. It does not have the uh, exact normal opening because Aaron walked in and uh, he's very tired for good reason. <sighs> Aaron, you're breathing deep. Bike tear. <laughs> I biked harder on the city bike than I normally bike. <laughs> well, you've got, you've got uh, the energy of a new father. I had a baby six days ago. My wife had a baby six days ago. Yeah, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel the kind of like telling an anecdote, uh, you're so tired when you have a baby. I, I actually feel that visceral, actual <laughs> feeling. Because <laughs> you're both not sleeping and then you just rode a bike super hard for like 20 minutes. Yeah, and I don't even know why I came here. I only came here because I had been planning in my mind for like 24 hours that I was going to come here. And then I still didn't decide to leave until 4.30 when I was supposed to be here. Wow. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, you guys, this week on the show, someone I've been trying to get on the show for a long time, Tina Brown. Whoa. That's a big one. She was the editor of Tatler Magazine in the UK, and then she went from there to run Vanity Fair in the 80s. She went from Vanity Fair to The New Yorker. She went from The New Yorker to Talk Magazine, which she started with uh, Harvey Weinstein. And from there, she founded The Daily Beast. Uh, we talked about all of that, and in particular, this book that she just wrote, The Vanity Fair Diaries, which are like her literal diaries from the 80s running Vanity Fair, which... Uh, I got to tell you, it was like the most fun I've had reading something in a very long time. It's dishy, real dishy. You and guys. and you did this in her. You uh, you went to her. I did. I went to her house uh, very early on a Friday morning, and uh, I talked to her in her study. It was like the only place in the house with carpets we could talk. She was like wearing her pajamas. She was very excited to be wearing her like UGG boots and doing an interview. And uh, she is as as good a talker as you would imagine. Uh, you may be shocked to hear that I have not listened to this, <laughs> and I look forward to listening to it. This show is brought to you, as always, by MailChimp. They reliably uh, deliver email, whether you're awake or not. Thanks to them for their ongoing sponsorship of this show. And now here's Max with Tina Brown. Well, hey, Tina Brown. Thanks for having me to your study. Thank you so much. I love having you here. <laughs> uh, I've been looking forward to it. I've been trying. I've been trying to have you on the show for a long time. So I'm excited oh, to be finally pulled it off. I'm glad you wrote a book to give us an excuse to talk. Well, it was so fun doing it and so fun talking about it. So I hope we have fun today. Let's just start where the book starts, which is you. At how at how old were you when you landed in New York? I was just turned thirty. Just turned thirty, and coming at that point to consult on Vanity Fair. That's where the book starts, and, and, and uh, it is sort of your diaries of that time. But help me understand what that felt like. There's this like moment that I read about, which I've heard about a bunch of times, and you're talking about with like Dr. Ruth is on in the cab. Yeah. Well, I arrived, you know, in actually the first time I came for this consultancy, I arrived in the spring, actually, of 1983. And, you know, I really hadn't 
experienced New York very much at all. I, I, I had spent a month or two there uh, when I left Oxford, sort of trying to be a stringer, but not in the sense that I'm now going to be in the big time. You know, I just had rented a little apartment in Chelsea and so on. I mean, this was different. This was like I was arriving for like this big time assignment and uh, Madison Avenue, you know, with uh, Condé Nast magazines. And I get into this taxi to take me into Midtown Hotel and uh, I'm bouncing along in the taxi and I hear this voice on the radio endlessly uh, on, on the on the cab driver's uh, radio going, you have to take it in your mouth and move it up and down and uh, make sure that the sensuality is real and... I'm thinking, what the hell is this? And I said to the, I knock on the window and I say to the driver, like, what are you listening to? He says, oh, I'm listening to Dr. Ruth. He said, it's my show. I listen on Sunday nights. And that's my sort of intro to New York City. And I'm sitting there in the back, bumping along, thinking, I don't think I understand this place. And I haven't even got to the hotel. With <laughs> <laughs> like in the, in the, pie chart of your emotions there but like how much were you nervous and how much were you excited were you, were you freaked I was out I, I had that kind of reckless bravado of the young you know i was so up for for just doing this you know i'd, I'd always dreamed of living in new york city I, it had a tremendous thrill for me glamour for me and as a child and as a young woman growing up who was a magazine junkie i loved uh, all of the books on you, you know the, the the vanity fair uh the new yorker American magazines had a huge glamour to me uh, mm -hmm. growing up. I, I love the visuals. I love the sense that the Dorothy Parkerness of it all, the Claire Booth looseness of it all, that's really was really spoke to me. And you know, you edited Tatler at twenty five. You got that job. Was the goal always to get here? Well, not when I took Tatler. No, because at that point, of course, I, I'd never edited anything. I was I was offered this job. I was a freelance writer. I graduated from Oxford. I'd very young, been sort of noticed by Fleet Street and was writing pieces, columns. And this real estate guy bought Tatler. He was Australian and he wanted an editor for it. He wanted to take this very small sort of ailing, shiny sheet with a good old title, which had really sunk to nothing, and make it into a real glossy magazine that could be a rival for Vogue and, and Harper's Ma and Queen magazine, which were the two big glossies on the newsstand in the UK. He couldn't get anyone to edit it. You know, everybody said no, because it was a ridiculous assignment. It had it had circulation of 10,000. I mean, the pay of like 50,000 pounds. It was a ludicrous job, really. And yet, somehow, he came to me because someone said, oh, well, you should try this young journalist who's, you know, you better try youth. Right, and you were freelancing at the time. And I was freelancing, and he said to me, do you want to come and edit the Tatler? And, he, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what, it's my thing. You know, I wanted my thing. I always wanted my thing. I felt I knew what people wanted to read. I thought I knew what, I wanted to write stuff that people didn't necessarily always want me to write. And I was tired even then, age 25, of pitching articles to, <laughs> to, to features editors who didn't who suggested I do something I didn't want to write. So I thought, get my own magazine. I can write for it, which I did, actually. I wrote a lot of it under various pseudonyms. Because right, I, I wrote, wrote, your budget was like nothing, right? Nothing, exactly right. I mean, it was absolutely nothing. It was a budget of £100,000 a year. And our motto was, if you haven't got a budget, get yourself a point of view, right? <laughs> and I wrote under the name of Tina Brown, under the name of Christina Brown, under the name of uh, Rosie Boot. I mean, I was like all over this magazine in different pseudonyms. Yeah, you were writing a, uh, Rosie Boot was writing a column about like eligible bachelors in London. Yeah, I had a regular front of book column where I wrote about, I suppose, you know, sexually harassing bachelors. <laughs> And it was like killer stuff. I mean, these poor guys, I mean, who'd sort of come on to me at various dinners and things. I then would write this killer sort of uh, funny column about them, about their sort of rating them in, <laughs> in a completely outrageous way. And, you know, it was really fun. And uh, they were stunned when they then saw it in the magazine. It was an outrageous thing to do when I think back. I mean, I never asked their permission. I just sort of used a, a caricature and wrote about them. When they would see themselves in the magazine, those guys, or anyone you were writing about at that time, and you were like, 26, 27, you're running this place and people are getting pissed off. Yeah, very. How did you respond to that? Did it freak you out or were you like, no, that's the I point? Mean, I, I was very iconoclastic. I mean, the thing is that when you're young, you see people in the establishment as wildly remote monsters who aren't really people, <laughs> which gives you a great freedom. It's why you need to hire young people, right? Because they're unintimidated by the people they're writing about. So I was writing about all of these sort of dukes and duchesses and, because, you know, the Tatler was supposed to be this establishment magazine for the upper classes. What we turned it into was this very irreverent attitudinal magazine that made fun of the upper classes, right? It's funny that you say that about like the the dukes and the duchesses just being kind of characters, you know, and like out of remove. Because that was one of the things that I was struck by in your book is that 
you sort of describe people and write about people as characters and like mm -hmm. archetypes. And it almost feels like there's some slight distance there. You just describe those people as like monsters and that's not the tone, but like there is some slight remove from their actual, like that it's an actual person. It feels like. Well, I I think it's a kind of fictional instinct really. Yeah. During the course of the Vanity Fair diaries, I often say, I should be doing a novel or it ought to be a novel or I see it as a novel because it was to me kind of Vanity Fair, the novel, when I used to go out and be put next to these, uh, I would call it social monstering. You know, I would go out and be put next to some Park Avenue hostess and I was never, I never wanted to actually be part of that social world as my life. You know, I always saw it as what I call observational greed, you know, that I loved going out and being in there and seeing it and having fun with it and seeing it as, as leads for the magazine, as material for the magazine, covers for the magazine, sources for the magazine, or just simply the fun of writing about it in my diary, you mm -hmm. know. And um, I did see a lot of them as hilarious caricatures. I mean, Jerry Zipkin was this character, this Park Avenue walker. Truman Capote famously said he had a face like a bidet, which I absolutely <laughs> love. And he had this whining naval voice and he would go like, you know, I'd, he'd say, do you know the Duchess of so-and-so is the daughter? And I'd say, no. He said, hello, you know, come in. I mean, she's only the most famous person in London. You know, it was this wailing voice and it was hilarious. I just found him something out of Evelyn War, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I loved that. And I used to come back and write it all up. Why didn't you want to be a part of that world? Well, actually, because I'm sort of an introvert. I mean, it may sound surprising to you, but I, my favorite thing to do is to sort of be home with my diary and my books and my cats and my husband and my children and all of that. You know, during the week, I would go out relentlessly in my uh, La Croix poof dress and red nails. And then I would, at the weekend, I would just withdraw and go mm -hmm. to our house in the sea. And I never used to do anything at the weekend. I think I would go out like twice a year or something in the Hamptons. Our house was uh, in Quag yeah. on the beach, and uh, I used to walk on the beach. I used to read. You know, I used to. I had two different worlds, and I needed both of them. There's a duality during the book, really, where I, you know, as much as I go out, I'm always longing not to. But I also am at least honest enough to say, I know that if I was out of it, I'd want nothing more than to get back to it. You mm -hmm. know, because it's it's just the arena. I'm a woman of the arena, if you like. I like the action. Did thinking about it as a novel and thinking about these people as characters make it easier? to write about them and cover them and, and make Vanity Fair what you wanted it to be? Well, yes. I mean, you know, obviously you get to know people, you get to like them. That can be sometimes compromising at times or you feel that it is. But yeah, I mean, I saw it as a world to cover. I saw this as the Thackeray of the time, you know, that this was our job to reflect it, cover it. And I also found I got amazing stories when I went out very often. You know, yeah. I, I would um, bring them back. Like when I went out to that uh, fundraiser I, I talk about for um, – was for suicide survivors. Anna Winter's husband was a psychiatrist and he, uh, one of his uh, things that he would do was to counsel uh, people who wanted to commit suicide, particularly teenagers. So I went to this event at their table and during the course of the evening, William Styron gets up, of all people, and starts talking in a really moving way about his struggle with depression. And I heard him and I rushed over and I said to him, in that kind of opportunistic way that an editor needs to do, you know, mm -hmm. I said to him, I'd love it if you could write that for Vanity Fair. And yeah. He said, I'll think about it. And he called me the next day. He said, I would like to do it. And then we ran this wonderful piece by him. It was 15,000 words, maybe even 20,000 words, which I called Darkness Visible after a line from a poem by Milton. And it was an extraordinary piece of writing of all kind and had the most incredible impact, both as a piece of writing and, of course, because people were really moved and it opened up the whole discourse about depression. That was one of those inst instances when just going out and being alive to what was happening is is what uh, I felt I needed to do. Part of the job. It was part of the job, yeah. What that story just told, that's just instincts, right? Mm -hmm. That's just like hearing something yeah. and seeing it it's in another- It's just about what interested me always. It was always that. And, and I would get my stories all over the place. I mean, it, sometimes it was an evening like that where I would go out and hear something. Often it was just writers coming in and talking and talking. And I love hanging out with writers. And that's so often where I would get my thoughts and ideas because sometimes you would have a writer come in to talk about a particular story and by the end of the conversation, you realize they shouldn't be doing that story. They should be doing something quite different because they had passions about things you didn't know about. And then you can remember what those passions are and, and go to them when those stories break. I found I would do that again and again, and it really worked. Can we talk about talent and spotting sure. talent for a second? Mm -hmm. I don't know. How do you do that? How did you found so many writers? There's so many voices, both at Tyler and then Fanny Fair and, and the New Yorker, like half the staff writers at the New Yorker are people you hired. 
How do you do that? Well, I'm always looking for voice. That's what excites me. And I also want to see somebody who who notices. Uh, you know, I say in the book, you can you can teach a writer how to write a lead or fact gathering, but you cannot teach a writer to notice the right things. If that writer is in this place and doesn't see the right things, it's not going to make an interesting piece. You can't re-report that because you're not there, right? You can you can help it by structure and 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 a new kind of beginning or adding, asking for things to be added, but you can't add what they saw and heard. So that's very, very critical. And I usually get that from often by talking to people as much as by uh, reading what they have said on the page. And I would often, often make writers out of people who weren't writers, but who I thought could be or should be. So in those conversations, what are you looking for? I'm looking for an ability to tell a story. I'm looking for access and uh, to an interesting world like Ted Conover, for instance, who wrote about being a prison guard at the New Yorker. Yeah, he's and, come on the show. Yeah, he's fantastic. But I mean, you know, he wasn't actually doing much of that. He was sort of writing for himself, you know, and, and he became a very good writer in the New Yorker. So uh, it's, it's really about can they tell stories? Can they identify stories? Do they have stories that I think are really interesting as they're talking? And I said, God, you must write that. Uh, I did a lot of that. And then at talk, actually, I did a lot of developing first-person narrative. I really was interested in getting first-person stories out of people. And sometimes I would do that by saying, just come in and you know, like throw it up on the page. In fact, I, I used to use the expression that the great Alex Shumatov, the wonderful narrative writer we hired at the Vanity Fair, he called it my vomit draft, he would call it. And I would say, come and just do your vomit draft. Just, just I don't care what it's like. Just put it down, you know, mm-hmm. and we'll shape it. Frequently we would do that, just sort of shape a piece for a writer who didn't know uh, how to tell a story. And you can teach people how to do that actually after a time, and they get very good after a while. In addition to those kind of tangible things, like being able to tell a story and being able to find the details that matter, is there something more like ephemeral? Is there some kind of feeling that you would have with people that just be like, I think you can do this? Well, yeah, it certainly happened with with Dominic Dunn when I sat next to him yeah. at a dinner. I mean, when I first met Dominic Dunn, he wasn't writing for magazines at all. He was a film producer in a hard luck phase, right? He hadn't. <laughs> he was a failing film producer, and I sat next to him at, at at a writer's dinner, and he started talking about you know his life, his. I, I loved his kind of roller coaster world, Park Avenue, Hollywood, AA, you know, down on his luck one minute, you know, hobnobbing the next. Downward mobility is always such a great topic. I always feel it's the most exciting, much more interesting than upward mobility. And, uh, you know, I thought he had an incredible voice. Then he told me this horrendous, tragic story, which is that his daughter had been murdered. And he was actually going out to the trial of the murderer in LA. And I said to him, you know, Marie Brenner, whose house it was, she said to him, you know, do you keep? You should keep a diary like Tina. And I said, yeah. And if you do, I want to read it because you know it could be a, a fantastic piece of Vanity Fair. Because I just sense that if you could tell the stories like he was, we could shape it. I said, well, just just do it as a diary. Do it as a letter to me. You know, mm-hmm. I'd sometimes say that. Today I will say, you know, write me an email, a long email. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for uh, just a second. Our show today is supported by Squarespace. If you are uh, waiting to do something in 2018, if you are uh, binging now, you know, like gorging on whatever your guilty pleasures are because you're going to cut them all out in 2018, I have a recommendation. What about not waiting? What about just trying the thing you're telling yourself you're going to do later? What about just building that website you have been meeting to build and... uh, what about doing it at Squarespace? The future's coming. You might as well make it brighter with beautiful templates created by world-class designers. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a new and unique website. You can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products or services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products. It's all optimized for mobile right out of the box. And they've got these uh, fantastic analytics so you can know who's uh, checking out your website which is a nice thing to know. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. You don't need to know one lick of code. And if you ever have a question, Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support is there to help. A dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code LONGFORM to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code long form thanks to them for their support support yourself go make that website let's get back to tina brown so 
you're sitting at this dinner party at Marie Brenner's house, and Dominic Dunn is telling you all these stories, and he's this wonderful raconteur, and then he tells you his daughter has been murdered, and he's going to her trial. Is there any pause for you in being like, that would be good for my magazine? Well, no, look, of course, I have great empathy when people, whether it's William Styron or, or Dominic. In fact, people tell me their stories all the time because I'm really engaged. I mean, I'm genuinely really interested. And then as I start to develop the conversation, I then switch into editor mode. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the second part, as it were, I'm suddenly, wait a minute, this is an incredible story. And so I do that. I mean, I'm genuinely interested and empathetic and curious, you know, but then I switch into editor mode. I can't help myself. And it's partly, I think, because... I mean, I grew up in a house, my father was a movie producer, and he just always saw everything as stories. He was always looking for a story, always looking for a story, something to bring to the screen, you know, in that kind of crazy, frantic way that movie producers are always looking for stories. And so I kind of was raised with like, not just the search for the story, but then the kind of wrangle to get it done. Mm -hmm. Because I did know getting it done is quite a different issue. I mean, you can say to anybody you like, my God, that's an amazing story. That's the beginning. Because then you've got to get it out of them. And I've teased so many stories out of writers over over time by sort of because they lose confidence as they go along. They go, I don't think I've really got anything interesting here. I don't really think I'm going to do it. At which point I'll say, well, come in and let's talk it through. You know, let me look at what you've got. Yeah, what's the step after the vomit well, draft? I mean, the first thing you've got to get the vomit draft. That's hard. If you get a vomit draft, you're on your way. But most of the time it's about getting it at all, right? Mm -hmm. So then you have to get it at all. So Because they frequently drop off the, the vine, you know, and they say, look, I, I've had thoughts about it. I don't really want to do it. I can't really do it. I don't really see it. And that's the point where I have to kind of try to come in and really get them to see that there is a story there and then say, no, that's interesting. That's really interesting. And then I'll look at what they've done and I'll go, you know, this is interesting. This isn't. Develop this. And you need constantly to be reassured as a writer. I do think that writers need a lot of sustaining. They need a lot of sustaining. And I feel I frequently play this role now to writers. I'm not an editor right now, but or haven't been for a while, but writers still send me their stuff all the time. And I can't help myself about saying, you should do this, you should do that. I wish sometimes I just wish I'd stop because then they start bombarding me with their stuff. But I do like being engaged with writers. I really do. And I and I I admire them. You know, I admire the way they, they sustain themselves. It's funny to me that you're still like kind of ghost editing people. It's like you can't you can't quite stop. <laughs> well, I'm co I, I'm not so much a ghost editor as I I do a lot of coaching. You know, mm -hmm. with writers, I'll say to them, "Yes, you have that story. You must do that story. Where is that story you said you were going to do?" You know, I do a lot of that. Are you just as curious now as you were then? Does that go away? Oh, I'm totally curious. I mean, there's so many wonderful stories to be done every day. I mean, one of the things I miss here tremendously is um, what we do much more of in in the UK. Here, my thinking British suddenly is uh, profiles, you know? I mean, how many really great profiles did you read about Doug Jones? I mean, I really didn't know anything about Doug Jones until he won. In fact, I don't think I'd ever seen him or heard him speak because everyone was so obsessed with Roy Moore yeah. that I, kept, I started to think, well, I wonder what the other guy's like. <laughs> I mean, we know this man is a complete, you know, lunatic, but what is Doug Jones like? Maybe he's a cipher, maybe he's a nothing, you know, who, who knows? Then when he came out that night, I thought he was fabulous and he had a very interesting looking wife. I hadn't read this anywhere. Why do you think no one wrote that piece? Do you have a theory? It doesn't seem to be a newspaper form that, that has really become sort of a developed, evolved form mm -hmm. uh, here. I, I don't know why. You just wanted a piece at some point a month ago that was like... Yeah, I wanted this to is, be... This is the other guy. Exactly. I'd like to have seen it as a one-page, sort of 1,500 words, good picture, really gathering it all together. Who is Doug Jones? Why should I care? What's he like? I mean, what's he done? Did it drive you crazy to not have like a team and a place and an outlet for this stuff? Sometimes. People listening should know, like you just sat up in your chair. You were just so <laughs> excited talking about that. And it made, like, is it, yeah, does it, does it drive you crazy uh, to not have your spot? Sometimes I get frustrated, yeah, because if I see a story not being done, like the Doug Jones profile, while I'm wandering around thinking, where is my Doug Jones profile? Then I get frustrated, yes. I mean, you know everyone. Do you never, do you ever like just like shoot someone an email and just be like, Doug Jones, get on it? I do sometimes, but I find that I'm reminded about why I became an editor in the first place, because a lot of people just don't see it. Mm -hmm. They just think, oh, that's a good idea, but it doesn't happen. No reason why it should. They don't work for me. But but I think, well, why not? You know, I'm amazed. One thing reading the book and then just, you know, kind of going back through your career and this time at Tadler and then Vanity Fair and then seven years at The New Yorker and then leaving The New Yorker to start talk, I was struck by what feels when you kind of like 
spit it out that quickly, like a real restlessness. Mm-hmm. And and I, I wonder where, where you think that comes from. I think it's a flaw probably, but uh, the restlessness comes from the fact that I love making things and creating things. I'm less good at being a steward. You know, I'm less good at thinking, okay, I've done this now. Now I'm going to kind of like consolidate. Now I'm going to take it. I, I get irritated by that process. I want to start something else. I get, I get very, I'm very creatively, um, you know, energetic. And I, I like the making phase rather than the consolidating phase. And so I tend to leave, not necessarily the right decisions, but, but uh, I do want, I do find myself with a roving eye once I feel I've got to a certain place. You just get bored. Yeah, I get lusting to do something else that's truly demanding creatively, you know, and that's when I get restless. But that feels like a flaw? Like you you have regrets about that? Well, I think, you know, clearly I, I made a mistake, right, leaving The New Yorker for, for working with Harvey Weinstein. But the, the, the reasons were good, mm-hmm. you know, in the sense that after seven years at The New Yorker, I very much wanted to develop it as a creative company that would do more than a magazine. And I wanted it to be live events. I started a, a, um, a, co- a conference while I was there. We called it the next conference, but they didn't want to do it after the second year because I wasn't in charge of the business. So mm-hmm. I had to persuade people to do things. So uh, I wanted to do live events. I wanted to do a radio show, books. We were constantly being asked to develop stories, you know, to, to sell them to movies. And I thought, why aren't we doing that? And I saw a kind of HBO, a literary HBO kind of company. And I couldn't persuade Cy Newhouse to do it at all. And when I look back, I, I know I was right, right? But I was actually way, way ahead of it. You know, mm-hmm. it was 1998. And, you know, it's only been in the last five or six years that the New Yorker has actually started to do those things. So I was just too ahead of my of the curve, if you like. And sometimes that's a problem. You know, it's not a good thing. I mean, it sounds so self-congratulatory. I was ahead of the curve. Well, actually, it's not a good idea to be ahead of the curve if nobody else shares the vision because then you can't get it done, right? So I couldn't get that done and I left because Harvey wanted exactly to do that. You know, Harvey Mm -hmm. said, I want to start a magazine that is a movie company, a book company, whatever. And we did a great book company, I have to say. The book company was a great success we did, which you don't hear about much, but we had about seven or eight number one bestsellers with our book company. But the magazine was just this battleground of, you know, of competing visions. I mean, I just didn't see it the way Harvey saw it. And um, we just battled all the way through and and I found him impossible and and it just wasn't a good fit at all to go yeah, work with him. You you just called it a mistake. How long did it take for you to realize that it was a mistake? About 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally, the first meeting I had with him, I thought, oh my God, the man that had been kind of wooing me to come was nothing like that when he got back to his own shop. He was hmm. rude. He was aggressive. He was dishonest. He was horrible. And I thought, oh no, you know, I've left the sort of Conin asked for all its frustrations and they were many, nonetheless was a, a civilized company and this was not civilized at all. So, but you know what, it was like, I learned how to battle and how to, you know, you just, it's, it probably was a good toughening experience in some ways for me. I, I got to ask you about Weinstein, but I'm, I want to sit in that moment for one more second because it's, it's something that I'm really curious about is like. All right, you're the editor of the New Yorker. You've you've uh, you've had this great run at Vanity Fair, this great run at the New Yorker. Can't convince Cy Newhouse to get on board with the multimedia like platform game, and you go and do this. You know what I'm sure felt like a big risk, mm-hmm. crazy thing. Twenty minutes into it, you're like, this guy's a tremendous asshole. Yeah, this, it was a pretty traumatic moment. Yeah, what, like I burnt my bridge and I had to just live with it. Yeah, you know? help me understand. Like literally that, like that night. How did you? put your head down and grind it out? Well, because I had a passionate vision for Talk Magazine, which actually was a really great magazine. And the staff that I hired at Talk are honestly some of the best people I've ever hired. It took about a year and a half to get it gelled because that's what it takes on a new magazine. But it's such a good magazine. And, you know, it's very funny. On my book uh, tour for the Vanity Fair Diaries, there's always like three people in the line who bring me a Talk Magazine to sign. And I go like, why have you brought this? And they go, because we love this magazine. Right. And it makes me feel very happy. I just say, I love you. I love you for <laughs> saying that. <laughs> Talk, I feel like, got set up a little bit to fail. You guys threw this like notorious party in the Absolutely. Statue it was, of Liberty. It was and... part of the madness of the whole thing was just the, uh, the uh, David Brown, the film producer, once said to me, never give a party that's better than the movie. And there was something to that in that you don't want to give a launch party that size. But again, you see, people forget why we gave the launch party that size. We gave a launch party that size because we had originally been doing a kind of funky party in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. That was the original party. Then 
Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor at the time, learned that Hillary Clinton was on the first cover and she was running against him in the Senate. So uh, he tossed us out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. He said, you cannot have your launch party there. Can you believe it? This maniacal ego maniacs. And he said, you cannot do the party there. So this was where Harvey, like you you say that to Harvey Weinstein, then he turns into this complete, He's he. this made him crazy beyond belief. And he said, fuck Giuliani. If, he, if we can't do it there, we'll do it on a federal site. Find a federal site. So I thought, wait a minute, what about the Statue of Liberty? We could do it there. So we take the ferry over and we look at the site. No one has ever done a party at the Statue of Liberty. There isn't even any lighting there at night. We had to hang up lanterns. And we decided we're going to do it there. And then it kind of escalates into this statement, not as a launch party, but as a kind of F you to Rudy Giuliani. It was all about that. That's what it was all about. But that all got lost in the melee, right? And it just turned into this kind of celebrity, amazing Noah's Ark of celebrities with all of these people disgorging from this ferry over to Staten Island. I mean, literally, sort of Madonna getting off with Salman Rushdie, Paul Newman getting off with Henry Kissinger. It was insanity, the whole thing. But it was sort of wonderful. And it was sort of the end of the 20th century (laughs) in terms of kind of mood, you know, because as we sail back on that ferry, I remember, you know, sailing past uh, the Twin Towers. We were in this boat with, you know, Helen Mirren and Kate Moss and all these people. And then when the Twin Towers went down, you know, so shortly afterwards, I just looked back on that evening and I just thought the whole kind of 90s extravagance, the Clinton era, the sense of kind of wonderful, anything can happen, is gone. And it didn't really ever return, I don't think. And 9-11 really uh, sunk talk too, right? It did, yeah. The advertising disappeared, so it folded. But, you know, one learns a great deal. I mean, I, I Vanity Fair, I learned so much about how to sort of how to make something happen. And The New Yorker, I learned so much about how to reinvent a brand that's a sort of sleeping beauty but needs to be essentially kept intact but revamped. But Talk Magazine was about battling so much more. You know, it was about trying to be an entrepreneur for the first time, learning what it is to make the wrong partnership, which is far more educating than if you just get it right again, right? Mm So I think failures are very important to have as growing experiences, I have to say. So when people come in and they have these resumes, which are all sort of accolades, I kind of think, where's your failure? Mm-hmm. Like, are you going to be a complete arrogant asshole because you've never failed? Or, you know, are you going to have your first failure on my watch? Because actually, everybody has a failure. Did you have that perspective at the time? No, I was, you know, bereft, you know, because I loved it. You know, I get very passionate about what I'm doing. I mean, I loved all I could think about was the articles that were in the pipeline I couldn't publish, the wonderful cover that was about to happen, the the, the the editors. I'd finally picked my group and they were all working well. You know, it was like it just got it just got really under control. So I was uh, I was very upset about it. Um, but, you know, I went off and I wrote my book, The Diana Chronicles, and just kind of battened down and went back to being a writer, which, you know, is where I always get my solace, actually. So mm-hmm. it was sort of a good thing. I mean, I might not have written that book if I hadn't lost all. And then you, you got a little break from having to go to parties every night too. I just sat in Quag in my Uggs. It was absolutely <laughs> gorgeous. Were you surprised by the Weinstein news? I was surprised that he was really a monster hiding in plain sight. You know, the monster that I knew on a daily basis turned out to be even more of a monster by night. You know, I, I, it was hard to imagine he could be worse than the man that I knew in business, but he turns out to be very much worse than the man I knew in business. Uh, and I'm shocked by how much worse, you know, I am. I really am. I mean, it's been absolutely almost harrowing to read the stuff he did. And it's interesting, when I listened to that tape of him with the Italian actress, it really gave me a kind of PTSD moment of working with him. That horrible combination of bullying and wheedling and insistence and fake charm and threat and all those mechanisms that he had to, to bully and tyrannize which is what he used to do at work, you could hear it all on the tape and it was very unsettling to think of it allied to sexual aggression. Mm -hmm. Did it change the way you think about that time at all? Well, in a way, yes. But I mean, it's distressing to think of that was going on in a company that one was working with. Of course, it makes you feel even worse about having worked with him. But, uh, you know, there was a reason I went to work with him, as I mentioned. And not only that, uh, he was making wonderful films, you know? I mean, this is the thing that was so difficult, which people now... Uh, keep talking about, oh, you know, people fell for his power and his money and his colluding and all. Well, actually, they were doing it because they were passionate about their work. You know, they wanted to see their work 
done. Mm. And he was making wonderful films, had great taste, and, you know, he picked great projects, you know, projects that excited artists, you know. And as you know, artists are very single-minded. They just want to do their stuff. They just want to do it. You they, do. I do, absolutely. I wanted to do it. I mean, my magazine, it, it was critical to me. I wanted to keep it going, you know, because I loved it and mm -hmm. I loved the people working with me. So it's been very tragic, really, all around. How would you be covering this moment? What, what are the stories that aren't being told? Or, well, or? I think, obviously, the profile of Harvey that needs to be done is how Beauty and the Beast coexisted. They did have to coexist. The man who loved French movies, who made great films, was the same man, incomprehensibly, who was doing such horrendous and monstrous things. That, of course, to me, is more interesting than it just being monster, period, because that's just a one-dimensional story. This was a two-dimensional story. So that interests me tremendously. Um, I'm very interested, of course, in, in where this Me Too movement goes. I mention of Harvey and we get the scream of police sirens. You were saying you're, you're, you're interested in where this Me Too movement goes. Yeah, I'm interested in where it lands because uh, it's been fantastic to hear the sort of therapeutic rush of voices of these women who, who have had such, many of them, such horrible experiences. And then where does it go in terms of making it a better world for women? Or are they gonna, is there going to be a big backlash? And I do believe that a lot of the uh, volcanic sort of rush of uh, Me Too is also a lot of accumulated rage, um, not just about sexual harassment, which is bad enough, but it's also just about feeling stalled, you know, that women have just felt they've just had enough of being stalled. And mm -hmm. it goes on and on. It doesn't really change. And when you consider, you know, I was asked yesterday, well, what about the news industry? Is this going to, I'm thinking to myself, I looked up the figures and it's like the new, there's 1% more women in American newsrooms than there was in 2000. Is that right? So that's 17 years, 1%. What does that tell you? It tells you it's just glacial. And I think that's really what's really upsetting women is that they keep getting near the top and not really at the top. You talked a lot uh, in the past about um, one way that manifests also like needing to be gold to get a silver job. Mm -hmm. And that is a lens I think you can look at your career through too. Like, yeah. You know, running the New Yorkers is about the top, although you had to completely revolutionize Vanity Fair to get there. And the New Yorker was kind of in a, in a down. Absolutely. Time. And I had to also deal with the fact that writers just quit at the mere fact that I arrived. You know, Garrison Keeler, I had to smile a little bit when he faced <laughs> some of his recent problems with sexual harassment. I mean, he like quit on day one with a big salvo about how appalling it was that I'd taken over. George Trove, you know, who was one of the New Yorkers. Old guard said I was the girl in the wrong dress, which Oof. I thought was the most kind of sexist thing that you Jesus. could imagine. But, you know, even when I was sort of had citations for, you know, uh, winning magazine awards, there would then be a write-up and the write-up, one of them said, I shall remember keenly, and I think I do it in the Vanity Fair Diaries. It, it says, um, of course, many feel that the reporting and investigative journalism is just a starlet trying to be Juliet. And I just thought, Wow. William Styron, Alex Shumatov, T.D. Orman, their amazing pieces. I mean, Peter Boyer writing. I mean, I'm a, a star. You know, it, it was so belittling, really. How did that affect you? It made me furious, actually. Uh, but it also was my goad. I mean, you know, that kind of belittling either makes you wilt and go home or it makes you think, okay, I'm going to show show you, you know. So, so I did a lot of that, sort of wanting, having a kind of bravado about showing that wasn't true not letting it look as if it annoyed me, and surging on, you know? And I think that's what you do, right? I mean, if you want to be successful. But as I look back on it now, and I remember those things, I mean, reading my diaries, I was interested to, to, to read that. You know, it's like it, it, I forgot mm -hmm. how irritating that it was and what a goad it was to me at the time. And, you know, I, I also, what was interesting when I saw the CBS footage, which they used when they did a piece on the book, was when I was presenting the magazine to the management of Condé Nast, it was a table full of men. It was literally, I was the only woman, and there was like 10 middle-aged white guys sitting there nodding their heads and looking at the magazine and pronouncing whether they would, they would order, you know, 100,000 or 500,000 that month. And I didn't even notice it at the time because it was the water in which the fish swam, if you know what I mean. So mm -hmm. I didn't really think of it as strange. 
looking at it now, I realized, oh my God, you know, it was strange. And when I got pregnant and told um, the HR director that I was pregnant, uh, I'll never forget that she said to me, that's excellent, she said. We'll have a chance to test our maternity policies. <laughs> <laughs> she's, a, she's a real hero of the I book. I love her. She was so great. Pamela Van Zandt. If you're listening, Pamela, you're, you're an unexpected hero of the book. And now that I've sold it uh, uh, to be developed into a miniseries, uh, the, the producers keep saying, we love the HR director. So <laughs> watch out for being played by somebody good. <laughs> I, I'm surprised to hear you say that you'd forgotten it or didn't notice it at the time. Like, is that just... Is that like the only way to do it is to kind of compartmentalize it and not pay attention just to it? Just blaze the head. I mean, I just had to blaze ahead. But, you know, I was very lucky, too, because I was in a position of power, right? I mean, I was in a, I was a boss lady, whatever one, you know, however hard it might seem and was. Nonetheless, I was given those reins. So, I mean, full credit to Cy Newhouse, the uh, chairman of Condé Nast, that he gave me the job, okay? So it was glass cliff in the sense that two men had totally screwed it up ahead of me and it was sinking like a, you know, stone when I took it over. But nonetheless, I was given that chance and it worked and he acknowledged and rewarded me. So, I, you know, I was lucky to find that that sponsor, that mentor, if you like, in, in Cy Newhouse, who was such a kind of wonderful character anyway. You really kind of go back and forth with him on the book. Yeah, it's... It's a kind of roller coaster with him. But yeah. I think, I hope that people come out of the book thinking, as I did, that I loved Sign Newhouse, actually. It's just that he was. It's just a, that he had no balls. I said that once, <laughs> but then on other occasions I said, thank God for Sign Newhouse. I mean, you know, yeah. it, that's the great thing about a diary. No judgment is set in stone, right? It's about the ebb and flow of a judgment. And I forgot how much I had to kind of dance for Sai. You mm -hmm. know, I had to, I was constantly thinking, how am I going to make Sai do this for me? So a lot of it's about managing up. A lot of it was about, I have to figure out a way to get Sai to do this, give me more budget or allow me to somehow be in on decisions that I felt had, uh, affected my life, which frequently I wasn't. I mean, one of the running frustrations of the book, which I do feel was, was a sexist issue, was it was a kind of atmosphere of, you just edit your magazine and don't worry your little pretty head about the business side. Right which really aggravated me because I'd turned around the magazine. I'd taken it from losing 50 million to being a juggernaut, you know, profit, uh, profit maker for the company ultimately in the sense that, you know, we reinvented this brand and it turned into a juggernaut. And yet, you know, he would do stuff like decide to launch a whole European edition of the magazine and didn't even ask me. I mean, literally the first thing I knew about it was this Italian calling me saying, I would like to know about the pictures of Madonna. I would say, to, I called up Sai and I said, what is this? He said, we're launching, you know, Vanity Fair in Europe. And I thought, it, he doesn't even ask me, you know, what I think, if right. it's, if, you know, how it should go. But that's where it was. It feels like that's also a pattern, right? Like that happened at Talk too. That's right. That the business, like the business was not for you to worry that's about. That's right. And it was agony. And then unfortunately, the thing is, and this is where it is ironic, you're cut out of those decisions. And then when it all goes horribly wrong, it's your fault, right? It's right? on you. So that, that was a running theme of irritation. And of course, it is why I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just chose the wrong person to be it. But I do own my own company now and I do meet my own payroll and it's going well and I'm very proud. <laughs> uh, is it just yours? Is Women in the World just yours? Or is it, or is um, I own 80% of it actually, yeah. yeah. Do you like not having like a full-on partner? I love it. I love having my show. I have an amazing team. The 16 people who are just, there's just no slack there. They're all just great. They're people I've picked and found. Nobody told me I could or couldn't. Uh, it's self-sustaining on the money we we get from sponsors. We do very well. I mean, it's, it's it's thrilling, actually, yeah. I mean, it has frustrations at times and anxieties at times, but it is a very gratifying thing to finally know that I can run my own show mm -hmm. and that it's doing well. Whether at Vanity Fair or New York or Talk or the Daily Beast, what's been the hardest thing for you? What is the hardest thing for you about being a boss? The fact that it's yours and you can't walk away, right? That's the, that's the downside. <laughs> there are times when I just want to think, okay, that's it. That was great. I know I just want to go to the beach and write my books and whatever, and I'll see ya. But unfortunately, if it's your own company, it's mm. like you're, you know, intrinsic. If it's a small company anyway, unless, you know, IBM buys it or something. <laughs> I guess maybe a better way to ask that question or what I was really thinking about was, you know, in the book, these people are characters and kind of the way you talk about writers, their characters and energy and their sort of talent. But I wonder how much you enjoy managing people. I'm a person with dynamism in terms of like, I want to see it done. And then I have enormous uh, drive about seeing it done. You know, so actually, I do like putting together a team, knowing they're the right team, and then being the one to kind of drive that quest for excellence, you know, and um, helping to inspire that 
ethos. And I'm very excited with my company right now because I feel having been together now with these people for three or four years, they're so good that they drive me now. That it's like, because I'm so happy to say, oh, you know what? Forget it. We just can't, like, we've, we've just, we've tried to do this. It is, and they go, no, you know, we can do it. Just give us another day. We're going to try and book, you know, I don't know, whoever the heck it is, Angela Merkel, whatever it is, you know, that they won't give up. Mm -hmm. And I love that about them because they, I feel also that they've imbibed that ethos and that's the DNA of the company and that's what they're going to do. Were you, uh, were people scared of you when you were running those magazines? Well, apparently so, because I, uh, you know, people say that now. I don't know that they really were. I mean, we had so much fun and laughter, you know, actually that, um, the people who are really, you know, on the inside of these magazines with me, I don't think that they were afraid of me. I think that they were, they knew that I was the last decider. Some people were intimidated, I think, because I can be, I think that's just because I'm British, you know, I can be a bit crisp. I speak very quickly and I know what I think, right? So that can be daunting, I think sometimes, but, um, but you know, I'm, I'm still friends with pretty much so many people I work with. Mm. I mean, I forget which magazine they were on with me. You know, I've got people who were, who went through the whole of Tatler, Vanity Fair, uh, New Yorker talk. They're still, you know, they, they came back and back and back. So they're such long relationships that I, it's like, in fact, one person who uh, I'm close to who was actually with me at everything, she said to me, you really think I still work for you, don't you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd be calling up and saying, you know, I think you should be doing this. And she'd go like, she'd laugh. And she goes like, actually, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> well, I'm actually like not totally surprised to hear that because I feel like that's one of the takeaways from the diaries is that work and your life were completely entwined. In yeah, yeah, there was there was no distinction. It's, it's like that, you know, that Dominic Dunn story. Like and you're talking to him as a person and then all of a sudden you're talking to him as an editor yeah. and, and it's no, I, pretty it fluid. Has, I mean, I, I, I love my work so much that, um, and you know, I'm lucky because my husband is a, Harry Evans, who's a great journalist who, I should say, I could have done none of this without him being there to support me all the way through. But we're both journalism junkies. And journalism is our kind of oxygen. Right? Mm -hmm. So we, we're so entwined with news and what's happening and who's, yeah, just we just love our profession as he loves he loves it too. And, and it's our great bond, you know, so we, we're a kind of two-man breakfast editing club at <laughs> breakfast. Think you'll edit something again? I don't know. I, I, I think um, the world is so insane, right? I mean, it's just too insane. I'm actually very glad not to have to make sense of the Trump moment, really, because it's, I think, I mean, everyone I know in news is, their heads are spinning. And I think it could become very stressful to try to make sense of it. It might be impossible to make sense of it. I think it, it's impossible. So you've really got to be up for a sleepless time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I really want to do that. I got one more question. I'm going to let you go. It was a really interesting choice, I think, to put these out as your diaries, mm -hmm. right? And I know that you added a little bit here and there and, and provided context for people, but it's really, it's a very present thing. You know, it's really like defining this moment and you have all this stuff at the beginning, all these caveats that are kind of like, a lot of these people sound terrible. It's a different time. Just bear with me. This is how the 80s were. This is my experience. And, you know, there's so many ups and downs and, and it's so obvious that uh, even if you didn't want to go out a lot of the time, that you're just having so much fun. Oh, I had a huge fun. And, but it, it, just to sort of get back to where we started, like sitting in that cab listening to Dr. Ruth or, or, or whatever, uh, is there something that you would tell 30 year old Tina Brown about, you know, the next chapters of her life? I think I needed to learn a bit of patience. I just was so avid to make it work, you know, and I think. I could have used a bit of temperance. You know, there are times when I'm so like, a, I have the emotional intensity of a schoolgirl about everything, right? So I, I would like to kind of tell me to chill out a bit. But, you know, what I'm happy about is I did manage to have a family too. And, you know, the family is the other big strain in the book, mm -hmm. which is my love for my children and my son who had Asperger's. And I guess I might have even told myself to have another one, you know? That's what I think I would have told myself. Slow down enough to have a third baby. <laughs> Do you think you've chilled out now? I'll never really chill out, but I certainly have. I'm, I'm more careful now about people. I, I've learned that it's very important who you go into business with. I'm much more skeptical now about promises, about people, about, you know, I, I tended to be, because I had a lot of success very young and they were all good experiences, really. 
I tended to think that everyone would be on my side and they're not always. So that I have become more judicious about. And I think, you know, as you get older, you do have more to lose. Were you more optimistic than you are now? Optimistic isn't quite what it is. It was just that I, I believe that my bravado had no limit, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, I see limits now. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I do see limits. But, you know, I'm still pretty reckless when I when I want something, okay? <laughs> That's why I don't tweet much, because I, I'll say something that will just cause me too much trouble. <laughs> Stay off Twitter. It's not good for your health. <laughs> I think so, too. Tina, thank you. Thank you so much. This was so fun. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer, who is uh, newly the father of young Lucy Lammer. Welcome, Lucy, to the world. Our editor this week was Courtney Harrell, and our intern was Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, Squarespace and Inc. Magazine's Company of the Year, MailChimp, the people who make this show possible. We could not do it without the fine folks at MailChimp. Thanks to them. And thanks, of course, to Tina Brown. I'd, uh, I'd been wanting to have that conversation for a long time. I'm so glad that it finally happened. Go check out her book, The Vanity Fair Diaries. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.